Uh, we're going to get into the Word of God. Uh, open up with me, if you will, uh, on your uh, Bible apps on your phone, if you have it, or in your hard copy Bible, if you brought it, and we are going to look at uh, Romans. We've been uh, in the, the epistle of Romans. Uh, last week, we were in Romans chapter 7, and so we are going to start to make the shift toward Romans chapter 8. By the way, arguably, in, uh, in my opinion, one of the most powerful chapters in all of Scripture. And so we're going to start going to this portion of the epistle of Romans. This is the letter that Paul wrote to the church in Rome. Um, Some might say is uh, the kind of magnum opus of Paul, the apostle, who wrote over half of the New Testament. And uh, the, the book of Romans gives us so much rich theology, explaining to a group of people, both Jews and Gentiles, who were in Rome. It was a mixed congregation. I love that we have stories in Scripture that are referencing a mixed congregation because we are a mixed congregation, Mission Ebenezer Family Church. We're not culturally monolithic. We have multiple cultures. We have multiple generations. Um, We have folks who grew up in a church background and folks who grew up not in a church background. And so it's wonderful to have a congregation that in some ways mirrors the audience that Paul was speaking to as he wrote the letter to the church in Rome. And so he had to explain a lot of things because there were a lot of things that didn't quite make sense. Isn't it wonderful that in our own Christian spiritual lives, uh, God often does things in our hearts and then later on we have to try to make sense of it because we can't fully comprehend, right? It's almost like that moment when you first experienced the Holy Spirit in your life, you were maybe moved to tears or, or maybe you had a physical reaction. Maybe you had to drop down on your knees or lift up your hands or sing out to the Lord or whatever it may be. And, and, and just because you had that experience doesn't mean that you fully understand all that God was doing or all that God has done. And so Paul's uh, instruction Uh, through his letter to the church of Rome in a lot of ways is helping to make sense of something that they were already experiencing. Does that make sense? And so it's a great, uh, it's a great uh, uh, book of the Bible. And so here we are in Romans chapter eight. Um, We just got out of Romans chapter seven and we'll unpack that in just a second, but let's go ahead and read verse one of Romans chapter eight and then we'll make our way through. My goal this morning is before we are done to at least cover through Verse 11, okay? That's my goal. Don't laugh at me, Sister Mabel. (laughs) She's like, if you're anything like your dad, we might get to verse 2. We'll see. Uh, uh, But if you didn't know, uh, uh, um, my my dad, uh, our our pastor emeritus, uh, had uh, done his doctoral dissertation on the book of Romans. Uh, so it's, it's no wonder whenever we get into the book of Romans that there's a wealth of knowledge and years of teaching uh, that come out when we look at this passage. So, Dad, you'll have to bear with me as I do my best to unpack a few verses in Romans chapter 8. So verse 1, therefore, somebody say therefore. therefore. Okay, so you don't have to be a Bible scholar to understand that when you get to a therefore, what you understand is taking place is there is a continuation of an argument right? Therefore is essentially saying, because of what we just heard about, the next section is going to make sense. So there's a connecting point. It's a a hinge point from the former argument to the current argument. So uh, Paul says in chapter 8, therefore, say it one more time, there is now no condemnation. Somebody say no condemnation. Does everybody know what condemnation means? To condemn, 
right? There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I want to pause there. Before we go too deep into the rest of Romans chapter 8, we need to uh, unpack this powerful beginning of this chapter where Paul says, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So I want you right now just to take a deep breath in and hold it for a couple seconds and then slowly exhale. Because the truth of the word of God this morning for you is you are not condemned. Somebody say, thank you, Jesus. Right? That, that's where the, 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 the spirit of worship this morning that we entered into when we were singing to God, especially that final song that I was blessed by, that gospel song that our team led us, for the Lord our God is mighty, for the Lord our God is omnipotent, right? He is wonderful. That's where those words of praise come from, is recognizing that though we deserve to be punished because of our sin, because of our disobedience, because of our wickedness, because of the, the way in which we have consistently rejected the spirit of God in our lives. Though we deserve to be estranged from God and punished for the fact that we have not lived in accordance to how we've been created, through Jesus, us sinners have not been condemned. Wow. Thank you, Jesus. To not be condemned. Oh, man, this is encouraging to know that he's not done with me yet. It's encouraging to know that he hasn't given up on me, although he could have a long time ago, but he hasn't. And he says, I'm still with you. We are not condemned in Christ Jesus. Thank you, my man. Appreciate it, Brother Daniel. So let's unpack this. Therefore, so therefore is connecting it to chapter 7, which is uh, we, we ended, Paul ended his argument in chapter 7 by saying, hey, the things I want to do, for whatever reason, I don't end up doing them in my heart. And the things that I don't want to do and I try to avoid and stay away from, I end up doing. And he says, oh, wretched man that I am. Right? And so chapter 7 ends on this kind of discouraging note where Paul's like, man, I'm trying to live for God. And it just, I just keep falling flat on my face. Can anybody, can anybody empathize with, with Paul? Or, or is everybody else here holier than me? I mean, we could relate, but Pastor Josh was getting into this last week, and we can relate because, man, we try so hard to be right with God, right? And then all of a sudden, somebody cuts us off on the freeway. And we were just singing a worship song on Apple Music, right? Lifting up our hands on the 110 freeway, or the 91, or the 405, right? And we're just all, we're in like, we're in, you know... In, in, a, in a place of just holiness and sanctification, and we are feeling good because we're like, thanks for the Lord, my God. He is, what are you doing cutting me off? Right? It's like one second, we are right with the Lord, and then the next second, something happens, and all of a sudden, we are humble. Right? Like Pastor Josh said, we lost the anointing. We are flat on our back trying to figure out what to do next. I love that the Apostle Paul could keep it real. I love that he included that section because a lot of us, if we were trying to write a letter to a church in Rome convincing them of the importance of following Jesus as Lord, we'd probably hold out a lot of things about our struggles because we don't want people to know about how much it's difficult for, for ourselves to live consistently and daily and, and faithfully 
for Jesus. We'd rather make everybody else uh, believe that we don't have them struggles. But I love that Paul kept it real with us in chapter 7 saying, man, you guys, I am messed up. Because I keep trying and I keep messing up. And the stuff I want to do, I don't end up doing. And the stuff I don't want to do, I end up doing. Man, what hope is there for me? Right? And then, in, in, at the end of chapter 7, he transitions from that thought and says, I am messed up and I am broken. And it would be difficult for me to have hope if there wasn't somebody who came and said, I'm not going to condemn you for that. I'm with you. I got you. And he says, praise be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who has promised to walk with us regardless of the struggles that we have. Isn't that cool? Man, I love it. So I'm I'm in the middle of baseball season. I'm coaching my 10-year-old son, and so I've got a lot of baseball metaphors and analogy going through my head, right? And one of the things I love to talk with my boys about is when they mess up in practice, right, and I come over and I tell them, okay, we're going to do this 10 times, I want to let them know this isn't punishment, by the way. We're not doing it 10 times because I'm punishing you. We're doing this because this is practice. And that's what you do in practice. You work on what you need to get better at. And guess what? I'm your coach. It's my job to make sure that you are working on things that you need to get better at. So this is, you're not trying to perform for me. If you made a mistake, guess what? We all make mistakes, so we're going to keep working on it. Don't feel bad about it. The goal is that we walk away from the field today better than when we stepped on the field. Spiritually, that's what Paul is saying in chapter 7. Don't feel bad when you fall flat on your your face. Just don't stay there. Because Jesus isn't standing there with his arms crossed looking at you flat on your face saying, see, I told you so. We did that to each other when we were 13 in middle school. But Jesus isn't a middle schooler. He's a loving God. And when we fall flat on our face, he's got a little bit of a spray and he's got a Band-Aid. And he comes over here and says, let me help you out. I know that hurts. Come over here. Let's wipe that off. If you don't want to do that again, by the way, then make sure you don't go in that direction. Come in this direction. There's less stuff to trip on over here. Isn't that like Jesus? So that's what Paul is trying to convince them of and tell them in chapter 7 is to say, hey, don't worry if you're not perfect by now. I'm not even perfect. Right? So then the therefore connects to that argument. And so when we get to chapter 8, he says, therefore, because of the fact that we have not been condemned or judged because we fall, because we've done things that we shouldn't have done, he says, therefore, there is no now, no. I love that now in there. I've got to keep that now. Therefore, there is now. What that means is that there used to be, right? If, he, if, if Paul says there is now no condemnation, that means that therefore there used to be condemnation. When was there used to be condemnation? It was when we were under the law because we keep breaking the law. And if we keep breaking the law, we are subject to the consequences of breaking the law. But Paul says we are now no longer condemned because Jesus has broken the law. I don't mean he like disrupted. I don't mean that he, he, he did something that was against the law. What I mean is he took the law and broke it. Does that make sense? So he says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, God, that I'm no longer condemned. Woo! That was a close one, man. Shoot. Right? Because here's the thing. Satan's job. Satan's not a creator, by the way. There's only one creator. And then there's a distorter. Right? So, so, so there's only one who knows who we are, why we were made, what we were made for. There's only one who knows what it's like when our lives are, are given over to the, the, the hands of God to do something with. See, when you put something broken in the hands of somebody who knows how to fix things, you end up getting an even better product. Right? As long as something is put in the hands of somebody who knows what they're doing with it, then it's going to be okay. Does that make sense? And so what Satan likes to do is make sure that we get as far away from the hands of God as possible. He don't want us. He wants us to feel condemned. He wants us to feel guilt and shame because guilt and shame are the tools that he uses to keep distance between us and the one who's ready to pick us back up. So Paul's saying, hey guys, don't hang your head so low. Guess what? We're all, part, we're all in the same boat called sinners. We've fallen short, right, of the glory of God. We can't get there on our own. We can't earn our own salvation, right? Even our righteousness is like filthy rags. Even when we try to do good, we keep falling flat on our face. But even still, you are not condemned. We don't serve an I told you so God who's petty, right? And by the way, if you're an I told you so kind of person, stop that, because God's calling you to copy him and to mirror his character, and since God is not an I told you so God, then we shouldn't be an I told you so friend, or an I told you so dad or mom, right? Even though it's really hard, and it's really hard as a dad, right? <laughs> what I say, fool? <laughs> Didn't I tell you, right? <laughs> Right? It's so easy. It's so easy to do that. But if God doesn't do that to us, right, then we ought to be careful about how we do that to others. And so Paul is saying here, be encouraged, sinners, me included, that just because you struggle doesn't mean that you're condemned. In other words, God hasn't given up on me yet. God hasn't given up on you yet. Therefore, there is now, somebody say now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Man, what a blessing. Right? I could stay on that one verse, but I told you I want to get to 11, so let's keep moving. Let's keep moving. So, okay, so, but, but I can't move too quickly because there is a, a qualifier in this verse. And what a qualifier is, is it, it's, it, there is some level of conditionality, okay? And, and that conditionality in this verse is... It doesn't just say there is therefore now no condemnation for anybody. Does that make sense? It doesn't just say, hey, guess what? Everybody, the whole world, no more condemnation ever for anybody. No. It says very clearly, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So for a second, we need to talk about what does it mean to be in Christ Jesus, right? Because if we want to experience being outside of condemnation, and we want to, the freedom that called, thank you, Lord, hallelujah, right, you ever had that feeling where you were supposed to get busted, and then somebody let you off the hook, Woo. 
It's like, ah, oh, thank you, God. Man, I thought I was going to get in big time trouble for that, right? <laughs> you know? So it's like, if you really want to experience what's that, what that's like to walk in the freedom of no longer living under condemnation, right? Then what Paul is saying here is, then you need to be in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus. Somebody say, in Christ Jesus. Right? Wrapped up in like an empanada, you know? Like, like Jesus is the outside, and then we get to be in the middle, and we're all covered in Jesus, right? We're in Christ Jesus, right? Or like, if you don't know what an empanada is, a, a, a tamal, right? Or, you know, you're, some of you are like, can you use an illustration that's not Latino? Okay, let me try. Let's see. It's like a corn dog, right? Uh, no, no, that's bad. <laughs> that's bad. All right, I'm going to get off of it. To be in Christ Jesus means we are all wrapped up into who Jesus is. Right? And Jesus is all wrapped up into who we are. And, and that involves a daily walk closely with Jesus as not just our theoretical Savior who's done something out in the sky. And if we say a prayer one time way back when, then all of a sudden we're covered. No, I believe what it means to be in Jesus is we are, are, are choosing daily to say, Lord Jesus, even though I struggle, I want my life to be wrapped up into yours and I want to live for you today. And I want my mind day by day to begin to take on your mind. And I want my heart day by day to be formed to be your heart. And I want my actions day by day to look more like your actions. And I want my words day by day to sound like your words. Lord Jesus, I want to be in you. And that's the invitation that we have. So he's saying, so what Paul is saying here is if you are making a conscious decision daily to pursue Jesus, then guess what? You're not condemned. What it doesn't mean, can I, can I step on a few toes today? What it doesn't mean is for those who said one prayer way back when and all of a sudden now you get to be covered by the no condemnation clause. Or it, it also doesn't say for the people who were baptized, there is no longer condemnation. Because guess what? Without a spiritual reality of daily walking with Christ, a baptism is a bath. Right? If that were the case, you should have put on some Old Spice or Dove or something right before and then get in and come out. At least you'll be physically clean. But if baptism is to make any kind of difference, it needs to be a conscious daily decision to live our lives fully in Christ. Right? I like to use the illustration of my marriage, right? I didn't 15 years ago stand up here on this same exact spot where I'm standing right now and tell her I do, right? And then for 15 years, never talk to her. Right? I would say at that point, we're not married, right? We just had a ceremony 15 years ago. There might be paperwork and documentation that says that she's my wife and that I'm her husband. But if I didn't talk to her for 15 years, I don't know if you can call that. I don't, I don't believe that constitutes a marriage. So in other words, walking with Jesus, being in Christ, isn't just a moment. It's a, a daily reality that we are choosing to say, Lord, I want to be more like you, and I want you to live more in me, more and more each day. Right? So that's the difference. So the no condemnation clause is available for those who are making a conscious decision consistently to say, Lord, I am yours and you are mine. Right? Right? And even when we make that conscious decision, we still slip up. And when we slip up, we know that according to Romans chapter 8, verse 1, even in those struggles, we are not condemned 
because we are in Christ Jesus. Make sense? So Paul is encouraging us today. And he basically wants to make sure, hey, church in Rome. I know that many of you, like, so he's probably thinking that he's heard stories, right, from people in Rome who have had conversion experiences where all of a sudden they had these moments, these revelations, these, these moments that kind of shook them to the core where they realized that they wanted to, to change their allegiance from whatever it was, whether it was uh, uh, Roman uh, religion and gods and goddesses and, and pagan worship and all these things, or, or whether it was old, old school Judaism and they, all of a sudden the Jews found out that Jesus was Lord and they gave their life to him. Or, or whatever it is that they were before. And all of a sudden, they, they, they have these experiences where they're like, they recognize the lordship of Christ. And, and they, 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 they confessed of their sin and they began making that walk. And then as they began to walk, like a week later, all of a sudden, they got the temptation that came of their old lifestyle. And some of them started to flirt with that temptation. And then some of those who were flirting with that temptation stopped coming around to the church in Rome. And Paul wanted to remind them, hey, just because you're struggling, that doesn't mean that God's forgotten about you. In fact, get back up. Let's stay on this walk. We're going to get there together. Isn't that awesome? Another way that I, I think about this is we have the seeds of heaven. Like, like think about like seeds that you would get somewhere from a nursery that you're trying to grow something that are being planted in earth, earthen vessels, right? We have, this, we have this body of sin. We have these, these temptations, these struggles that are connected to uh, uh, different ways that we've, we've, we've kind of allowed for ourselves to develop habits, habits and rhythms and mindsets that are constantly being shaped and reshaped to all of a sudden no longer reflect the way of this world, but to now reflect the way of God. So it's no wonder that there's tension. It's no wonder that there's challenge and hardship, right? Why? Because we still have this earth reality, this worldly reality that we're living in on a day-to-day -day basis, yet we're trying to tap into heaven consistently, right? And so our influences count. Are we allowing ourselves to be influenced by the patterns of this world consistently? Then it's no wonder that it's hard to live for Jesus regularly. When the values that I expose myself to are consistently antithetical to the teachings of the word of God. But when I, when I immerse myself into God's word, when I immerse myself into God's people, when I immerse myself into worship, when I immerse myself into prayer, when I recognize daily throughout the course of the day, the presence, the spirit of Christ wants to walk with me and be with me every second of the day, it is almost like a protective measure to make sure that the pattern and effect of this world isn't changing me into being a person that looks more like the world, but I am being formed and looking more like Christ through a daily cultivated relationship with the mighty God. So the struggle with sin and temptation in the flesh, it doesn't mean that we're condemned. What it means is that we're stuck in between two warring realities. So here's what he says in verse 2. Because, Christ, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free. Somebody say, set you free. Hallelujah. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. 
So he's juxtaposing two kinds of law. Paul is explaining that there's a law of the Spirit, which we haven't really begun to talk about yet in Romans. But he, what we have talked about is the law of sin and death. And he's saying these, are, these two kind of laws are warring against each other. Verse 3 says, For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So to unpack that a little bit, he says, so the law was powerless to do something. What was the law powerless to do? I believe uh, Pastor Josh was teaching on this in Romans chapter 7 last week, but we look at the, the law of God. So when we, we refer to the law, we're, we're referring to um, much of the Old Testament, the Torah, the, the five books of Moses, uh, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and following that law, and then the ways in which the scribes and the Pharisees in the first century, hundreds of years later, took that original law and added on multiple laws. So rather than only being 10 commandments to follow, it turned into like 633 uh, precepts that we needed to follow consistently. And, and that was kind of what was meant to preserve us to live a life of righteousness, was whether or not we were abiding by those 600 plus precepts that were given. Let me use a baseball analogy again. Yesterday, played a whole game. Great game. We ended up winning, which was exciting because we lost most of the season. But not once during this six innings of baseball between 10-year-olds did any coach, maybe a few parents in the stands, but I didn't see them, or players on the field, reach into their back pocket and pull out the rule book of how to play baseball. Wouldn't that be awkward? Like, you get a walk. You get to first base. Everybody pauses. They reach into their back pocket. They pull out a long scroll. What are we supposed to do now? Okay, good. Roll it back up. Put it away. No, why? Because the, the laws have been taught, and then from that point on, it's like you understand what the game is all about. Okay, let's go play, and we'll interpret it as we go. Another way of referring to the way in which the law in uh, Exodus, the Ten Commandments, etc., were made to be provisional is related to like my four-year-old, Micaiah, who was, didn't want to leave the, the, the foot of the, the altar earlier, not for reasons of holiness. <laughs> so right now, there's a, he has a law when it comes to our neighborhood, and the law is you don't cross the street, Right? Now, thank God, when he's my age, he's not going to abide by that same law because otherwise he's have like an obsessive compulsive disorder and he'd never cross streets. Because the rule that he, he was taught when he was three and four years old is don't cross the street, right? But he's not at the stage of maturity to understand how to cross the street properly. And so the rule right now is don't cross the street. The rule for Joseph, who's 10 years old, is you can cross the street, son, but I want you to look both ways twice, right? And then you can cross the street safely, right? And so the, the, the rule is connected to the spirit of the rule, which is safety. But in its infant stages, isn't interpreted 
in terms of the value, it needs to be taken very literally because my four-year-old doesn't know how to interpret yet. In fact, he does his own interpretation. And so the rules need to be very clear and precise. The rule is don't cross the street, right? And then, you know, we'll, we'll continue to build on that rule over time. Well, similarly, we have the law of God, which is given to us very clearly. And what Jesus is saying is, you're stuck, Pharisees and scribes and teachers of the law, pulling the scroll out of your back pocket every day that you can't even see what's going on around you. You're not living life because you're just trying to figure out. The, the, the law was meant to be a good guide, but it was not meant to be a good God. Right? The, the, the law was meant to help give us instruction to connect us and to keep us in preserve relationship with God. But it was never meant to take the place of God, which is what took place in the context of the first century. Jesus had a hard time with it, and Paul has a hard time with it. And what Paul is saying here is there's two laws. There's this law that we've had that helps us preserve a relationship with God. And there's a better law, which is the law that is inviting us into welcoming the Holy Spirit into our lives to be the living law within us to help guide our decisions, our directions, our conversations, our thought processes, our feelings. All of that gets to be guided by the law of the Spirit. Paul is saying we need a better law. See, interestingly, we can be spiritually lazy when we rely upon the written law. Right? Because I could hide behind it. As opposed to not being able to hide behind the Holy Spirit conviction. You all know what I'm talking about. Right? Right? The, the Holy Spirit might sometimes come and, and convict us of something that others might not even say is a bad thing. But when we're living with the Lord and we're trying to demonstrate and live a godly life, then we have to be attentive to what the Lord's saying. And it takes, guess what? Attentiveness 24 hours a day. It's much easier to rely on a scroll in my back pocket. I don't have to think. All I have to do is chat GPT, pull out the scroll. What does this say about this situation? Okay, good. Plug and play and do it. As opposed to having to be attentive to, Lord, how are you guiding me today? What conversations do you want me to have? How do you want me to deal with this situation? Lord, yesterday, something didn't feel right. What was going on in me? And what do I need to do to deal with that? And all of a sudden, I need to be open to the work of God in our lives, which is much harder than just hiding behind a scroll. So Paul's invitation, he says, the law was powerless to do this, right? And then he goes on to say, but Jesus, he said, God, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering, and so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement, somebody say righteous requirement, of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So what Paul is saying here is, again, going back to this word called atonement, Jesus has become our atonement. The righteous requirement of the law is that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And Jesus himself was a perfect, uh, uh, unblemished sacrifice 
And so in order for sins to be atoned for during the period of the law was you needed to bring a sacrifice that was costly. It cost you something. You need to acknowledge and recognize your own sin, confess of that sin, and then you needed a mediator like the high priest to come on your behalf into the presence of God to offer that sacrifice so that our sins could be forgiven. And what Paul is saying is Jesus did all that on the cross. And... Not just did he do that for this one annual cycle, but he did that for every cycle. And so the cycle of atonement was from that point on uh, disturbed to the point where Jesus is our eternal atonement. And that's exciting. And so the way Paul understands this and teaches this theologically is he's telling us that uh, we no longer need to go and purchase an animal sacrifice every single year and we don't need to offer it to some random high priest that doesn't even know our story and what we've been through and where we've been because they be chilling in Jerusalem. But Jesus is our high priest. And Jesus has been our perfect sacrifice. And he took our sinful nature upon himself by, by uh, coming in the form of a human, being born of the Virgin Mary, being raised on dirt in uh, Galilee. And he took all of this experience on himself so that when he died, this sinful law of nature, this law of the flesh was crucified on the cross with Jesus. And when he rose again on the third day, he rose into the law of the spirit, which we are invited into. So he says in verse 5, those who live according to the flesh have their mind set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their mind set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. Somebody underline that, highlight that, circle that, tattoo that. No, I'm just kidding. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. Hallelujah. Isn't that true? Can we testify on that verse for a second? That when we live in the world, what it leads to is death. And when we live in Christ, what it leads to is life and peace. What's better? Temporary satisfaction or eternal security and peace? What's better, momentary joy and pleasure or living a life where we don't have to look over our shoulder and we don't have to wonder how we've been living because we recognize that we are walking in the path that God has set out for us. We can hold our head up high. We don't have to be hiding from people. We can walk upright because God is at work within us and we're living our life in such a way that's aligned with what he created us to live for. No wonder why we get to experience peace. So he's saying that, that this is the, the difference between the spirit and the flesh. And then verse 7, the mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. You want to, I'll give you my quick two cents as to why I think that's the case. It's because we want to be our own God. Right? We want to be our own God. And that's why it's hostile. That's why the, the mind of the flesh is hostile to God because it doesn't want anybody telling it what to do. When in reality, we were not created to do whatever we want, whenever we want, however we want, wherever we want, right? Story after story, movie after movie tell us of the dangers of getting whatever we want because we don't even know what we want or need. 
And so when we get what we want, it's like my kids that come, and, and if it were up to them, all they would have all day, every day is candy and ice cream and donuts and slushies. And they're curious as to why after they've had two or three of those, thanks to the grandparents, not even paying attention right now. Thank God I slipped that one in. That after they've had one or two of those things, they're curious as to why I say no on number three. And I'm like, do I really need to explain to you why you cannot have that? They're like, yes. It's like baffling why you would not allow me to have ice cream right now. Because you had ice cream five minutes ago. And ice cream is not the only thing that your body needs. Although every once in a while, it is something that we need. Especially if it's thrifty ice cream. Especially if it's chocolate malted crunch. Pistachio. No, no, no. I don't know how I got there, but to bring it back. We just want what we want when we want it. So that's why the mind of the flesh wars and is hostile to God because what God wants for us is what we need, which ultimately is the best for us. And so it's important for us to humbly recognize and say, Lord, today, the things that I think I need, help me reorder what I, what I even think about those things. Help, help my priorities to be aligned with your kingdom. Forgive me for wanting things I don't really need that aren't consistent with your way for me. Forgive me when I feel tempted to pursue something that I think I want or need when I know that it's not consistent with your, uh, your kingdom and with your word. And help me to be aligned now with your purposes. That takes discipline, doesn't it? That takes sacrifice. That takes humility. That takes surrender. Because at that point it's saying, I'm not God. God is God. I don't make a good God. But I'm grateful that the one who does has patience with me. All right? So that I can come and say, Lord, I'm sorry. Because I've been trying to make my own godly decisions. When in reality, I need to be surrendered to your spirit in my life. Humbly quieting my own voices that are telling me what I want and need. And instead surrendering to what you're saying about what I really need. Right? So the mind... Governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. Okay, so some of you are, are thinking to yourself this question, um, what is the difference between the mind of the flesh and the mind of the spirit? And I'm glad you asked that question because the response is Galatians chapter 5. So if you can turn to Galatians chapter 5, uh, Paul, in his letter to the church in Galatia, uh, really um, descriptively lays out the difference between a life in the spirit and a life in the flesh. And he gives us some clear-cut examples. How many of you are the kind of people that you're like, okay, that kind of makes sense, but give me an example or two, right? So Paul's like, sure, you got it. Galatians chapter 5. When you have it, say amen. amen. It's not that far from each other, by the way, in the Bible. Verse 19 says, the acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred. I'm going to just awkwardly hang on that one. Discord. Jealousy. Fits of rage, 
selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. So he lays out some pretty clear examples, right? This is Then verse 22, but the fruit of the spirit, somebody say fruit of the spirit, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. Okay, so back to Romans. We took a little brief tour detour into Galatians to help us see a few clear-cut examples as to the difference between the law of the flesh and the law of the Spirit. So then he says in verse 9 of Romans chapter 8, You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but you are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his Spirit who lives in you. Hallelujah. So let's bring it all together. First 11 verses of Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul is reminding us, just because we struggle, don't allow that to be a tool for the enemy to keep us far away from God. Right? Going back to the baseball analogy, I would rather, one of my, I was going to call them a student. They're kind of students, right? Students of the game. I would rather a player mess up in front of me then mess up when I'm not around, because if they mess up when I'm not around, I can't see it and help coach them into learning how to do it the right way. I'd rather be present and close by to see them mess up so that I could say, hey, by the way, you might not notice this, but when you're doing that, I saw this. I have a way that we can work on that so that we can improve that. So in, in other words, what Paul is saying here is just because we struggle doesn't mean you're condemned. If anything, it means simply continue to surrender to the Lordship of Christ because we are on a journey and when we allow the Lord to work in us, the Spirit of God will continue to guide us into more and more closeness with God. That's a process called sanctification. To be made holy in Christ. None of us can make ourselves more holy, but we need the reliance on the Holy Spirit to make us more holy. So there's, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, right? 
And though we have this tension between the law of the flesh and the law of the spirit, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ who took upon himself our sinful uh, nature. And when he was crucified on the cross and rose again on the third day, we are now invited into that same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. So think about it. Resurrection power, the empty tomb, what we just celebrated a few weeks ago, is what is at work in us every moment you make a decision, I'm going back to church this Sunday. Every moment you're like, man, I've been going through it. It's been tough. Man, I've tried this and that and the other, and I just keep continue to find myself in this place of lostness and brokenness, but I'm going to get to church on Sunday. Guess what that was? That's the spirit of God, the resurrection power that's picking you back up from the ground to get you back on track. Hallelujah. Resurrection power, right? When we, when we mess up, when we allow those vices that we read about in Galatians, uh, when we give them a, a place to live and we allow them to get too comfortable in our lives and then all of a sudden we're reminded, you know what? This ain't how God wants me to live. I got to get this stuff straightened out. I'm going to do that. I need to get part of a Bible study. I need to join a small group. I need to get into the word of God. I need to spend some time in worship. Having that is the the evidence of the Spirit of God at work aligning us with him, and that is the way in which the resurrection power of Jesus is at work within us. Hallelujah. So he says, if Christ is in you, then even though your body, this is verse 10, is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. Whose righteousness? Our righteousness, not our righteousness. It's the righteousness of Jesus. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. So right now I want you to close your eyes with me and I want you to simply repeat these words after me. I am no longer condemned because I am in Christ Jesus. Say it one more time. I am no longer condemned because I am in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. If there's somebody here today that's making that decision to follow Jesus, maybe the way the gospel was presented today by Pastor Koba opened our eyes, opened our hearts, opened our minds to what Jesus wants to do in us every day. If that's you, we want to welcome you into fellowship. If you don't have a home church, we want to welcome you to continue to grow with us. And if you're making that decision to walk with Jesus and to allow the blood of Jesus to forgive you of your sin, we'd like to know about that. In the foyer, we have those welcome cards. If you could fill that welcome card out and let us know on the back that you're making that decision, we'd like to be in touch with you this week. We want to follow up with you. We want to direct you to our new believers class. We want to direct you to our new membership class. And we want to welcome you to the body of Christ. Let us all pray together. Father God, we thank you for today. We love you, Lord, and we ask that you would have your way in our lives. Holy Spirit, we thank you for being with us everywhere that we go. 
And Father God, we, the body of Christ, continue to turn to you for grace and mercy and forgiveness. For we are now not condemned, but the blood of Jesus sets us free. And we thank you, Father God, every day for that promise and that reality. We pray this in Jesus' name and the people of God said, amen and amen. God bless you, church.